God rules the future. God rules the future. You know, in a day that is filled with uncertainty, with wars and inflation, political and cultural divides, when our personal lives at times, our work, our health, our safety feel so insecure, when it feels like day after day after day, it's bad news on top of bad news, we need some good news. We need the certainty that God knows and rules the future. You know, in our verses today, Daniel is heartbroken and anxious because he's concerned for his people. Now, to remind you of some context here, Daniel has been praying that the people of God would be free from exile, go back to Jerusalem to rebuild, and to become a glorious city again. So after 70 years of exile, as God promised, the Persian king Darius releases the Jews to go back home. Praise God. But the problem is that the Jews didn't return. A small group did, less than 50,000, but the majority of the Jews stayed back in Babylon. That they had become so complacent, so comfortable, so paganized, that they didn't want to disrupt their lifestyle, so they stayed. And this broke Daniel's heart. That Daniel thought that 70 years of exile would be enough to teach the people to trust God, but they didn't. So in chapter 10, Daniel gets on his knees, he mourns, he prays, he fasts, and he's pleading for God to show up. So God sends the angel Gabriel to give Daniel a vision, and that's in Daniel chapter 11. And what we have in this chapter is that God gives Daniel a glimpse of about 150 years into the future. That the details are so precise that critics of the Bible say that the book of Daniel must have been written after the fact because it is impossible. It's impossible for someone to make these kind of predictions and have it all be right. But here's the thing. We know better that nothing is impossible with God. And that's the truth because he rules the future. Now, in the first 35 verses of this chapter, there are at least 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled and affirmed through history. Now, the likelihood of this happening is like filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep all across Texas, which is about 100 trillion silver dollars. And it's you painting one of those silver dollars, burying it in the mass of all these other silver dollars, and then you take a random person, blindfold them, drop them off in a random place in Texas, and tell them to walk wherever they want, and blindfolded, they can just reach down and grab any coin they want, as deep as they want, and that one coin, the chances of them picking up that one coin and it being the one painted coin is the probability of the prophecies of Scripture being fulfilled. Statisticians would call this mathematically impossible, yet in Daniel 11, that's exactly what God does. Everything that God said would happen, happened. And the reason why Daniel got this vision and the reason why God has given it to us is so that we would trust him because there is a God who knows and rules the future. And if our hope is in him, then our hope is certain. Daniel chapter 11 is here to help us approach each day with faith. 
Now, as you guys open up to Daniel chapter 11, you realize that there are a lot of verses in this chapter. So we won't be able to go through every verse in detail. But instead, what I'm going to try to do here is summarize key moments and the key moments and highlight the lessons that God wants us to learn. And let me just show you very quickly the big picture of what's going on with the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11. So you kind of see the flow of history here. That we first see here the Persian kings who follow after Cyrus. And then that leads us to Alexander the Great. And after he dies, the Greek Empire is divided into four smaller kingdoms with a specific focus on the Lucid dynasty, present-day Syria, and the Ptolemaic dynasty, present-day Egypt. And then we turn our attention to one of the Seleucid rulers, Antiochus Epiphanes. And then finally, we'll leap forward to the end of the age, which describes the Antichrist. Okay, so this is Daniel 11, and this is how it all flows. And chapter 12 is a continuation of that last person who I believe is the Antichrist. So with that, here are the three lessons from our verses today. Let me show it to you. First, don't trust in princes. Trust in God. Second, don't compromise. Stand for God. And then finally, don't be anxious. Rest in God, okay? So first, don't trust in princes. Trust in God. Verses 2 and 4. Let me read our verses here. 2 and 4. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which he, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these, okay? So what we have in verses two to four here is that we have the Persian and Greek empire. Verse two talks about the succession of four kings after Cyrus with the most prominent one, the last one, being King Xerxes. This is also the king that we read in the book of Esther who marries Esther to help save the Jewish people from slaughter. And, and from Persia, verses three and four now talk about the Greek empire, specifically the mighty king who is Alexander the Great, who by his early 30s had conquered the known world. But then he suddenly dies, and his empire is turned over to his four generals, the four winds, because Alexander did not have descendants, a posterity of his own, to pass down his empire. So that's verses 2 and 4, the Persian and Greek empire. Now in verses 5 to 20, the focus is on two of the four smaller Greek empires. The conflict between the Seleucid dynasty, present-day Syria, and the Ptolemaic dynasty, present-day Egypt. In these verses, they are called the king of the north, the Seleucid dynasty, and king of the south, the Ptolemaic dynasty. Now why the focus on just these two empires? It's because of their impact on Israel, who is sandwiched between these two warring nations. Let, let me just show it to you real quick here uh, on a map what this would have looked like. So you have Syria up top, 
right? And then you also had Egypt on the bottom, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire. And what would happen is that these two nations, empires, would constantly be fighting with each other, and Israel would be sandwiched right in between them. So history, so Israel would be in a constant place of war and oppression by either one of these empires. So what we have here in verses 5 to 20 is about 150 years of history, and when, it, when, and when our verses talks about the king of the north and the king of the south, it isn't about one ruler, but a dynasty of rulers. And let me just show you a list of all the rulers in Daniel chapter 11 from the north and of the south here. And I'm not going to try to pronounce names here because I'm going to screw it up, okay? But what we see here is that throughout all the history here, we have a history of betrayals, failed marriages, marriage alliances, invasions, backstabbings, poisoning of kings and their kids. It's nuts. This is all nuts. If any of you have ever taken any Greek literature or whatever, you will read all about these stories. They're all affirmed by history, okay? It's simply amazing. Now, what I believe that God is teaching us in these first 20 verses is simply this. Don't trust in princes, trust in God. Now, there is a temptation in our day and in every generation to place our hope in political leaders. That when he or she takes office, they're the savior. And when the other person takes office, you know, he's the devil, right? We can think to ourselves that if my guy wins the election or if my political party takes the majority, everything would be different. Don't trust in princes. Psalm 146 says this. This is where I get my language from. It says, put not your trust in princes. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that governmental leaders and elections don't matter. They do matter because these leaders can pursue policies that either help or harm others. But the point here is not to say that we shouldn't care about our earthly kings and kingdoms. But what Daniel 11 teaches and what Psalm 146 commands is not to put our ultimate hope in earthly kings and kingdoms. What is abundantly and repetitively clear in our verses is that the kingdoms of this world, the kings and queens, they are transitory, they are fleeting, and they are fickle. In our verses, I want to point out to you guys how often the word but is used. That we, have, that we have these great kings and generals with all their strategy, with all their scheming, with all their money and armies, but things don't ever work out. Look at all the buts here. Verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he. Verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance, but... She shall not retain the strength of her arm, meaning that the marriage alliance fails. Verse 9, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. That meant that he lost in battle. Verse 11, then the king of the south, moved to rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, but it shall be given into his hand. He lost that battle. Verse 12, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, 
but he shall not prevail. Verse 14, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, but they shall fail. Verse 16, but he, the king of the north, who comes against him, the king of the south, shall do as he wills, which means that the north will overwhelm the south here. Verse 17, he shall bring terms of, a, of an agreement and perform them, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Verse 18, afterward he shall turn his face to the coastland and capture many of them, but a commander shall be put to an end uh, to his insolence. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face toward back to the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken. Do you see the overwhelming pattern over and over and over all throughout history here. All these kings, queens, generals, and rulers with all their might and strategy, none of it endures. None of it lasts. Don't trust in human princes. The ultimate hope of deliverance and salvation and the kingdom we long for and pray for can only be accomplished by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. God gives us this vision to see the fertility of world leaders. Just think of Alexander the Great. If you were to Google his name right now, there would be thousands, if not millions of pages talking about his life and the brilliance of him as a general. But do you know how much attention Alexander gets in our chapter? One verse. That's it. Verse three. That is it. The point of our verses here is not that we would know Persian and Greek history. It's to know the God who rules history. You know, in our verses, the Seleucid dynasty is called the king of the north. And the Ptolemaic dynasty is called the king of the south. The reason that they're called north and south is because of their relationship to Israel. In, you know, growing up, when I was learning geography, you know, I would always see the United States in the center of the map. And let me just show it to you. Here, I don't know if you guys saw the same thing. That even though Earth, the world, Robert, you would know that it's a globe, right? It's, it's a globe. Just in case you didn't know, you know, the, the world is a globe, okay? So, you know, but for some odd reason, America is right in the center of everything. And frankly, can I just say, that's how we like to think of ourselves, that we're the center of it all. But that is not God's map. Israel is the center. That is why in the Bible, north, south, east, and west is always relative to the nation of Israel. Why is that? Well, what's the epicenter of Jerusalem? It's the temple. It's the worship of God. It is the presence of God. We are not the center of history. Kings and queens are not the center of history. God is. Don't trust in human princes, trust in God. Here's the second lesson for us. Don't compromise, stand for God. Now, in verses 21 to 25, we move from the conflict between the north and the south, and we turn our attention to one person. Verse 21 says this. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Now, 
Who is this contemptible person? It is Antiochus Epiphanes, the last king of the north in this prophecy. He's also the little horn that we've studied in Daniel chapter 8. He ruled Judea from 175 to 164 BC. Now in the grand scheme of history, that is nothing, nothing at all. But the reason it is so notable in scripture is because of his slaughter, slaughter and attack of God's people. That during Antiochus' reign, he slaughtered tens of thousands. He entered into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar. He defiled the temple. He took the sacred items. He erected an altar to Zeus in the temple. He instituted pagan cults. He forbid Sabbath. He forbid circumcision and possession of the Torah scroll. Or else, if you had any of those or did any of those things, you would be put to death. He was as bad as you could imagine anyone being. Now, why was he so cruel? Verse 29 says this. At the time appointed, he, Antiochus, shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, Antiochus, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. So this prophecy points future to a time that we know has now been affirmed by history when Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to conquer Egypt. But Egypt made an alliance with Rome. And this is actually the first time Rome begins to show up on the world map here. So when Antiochus goes to Egypt for war, he is overwhelmed by the Roman army and navy. And he is embarrassed. That there is a story of where Antiochus is confronted with the Roman army in general. And the Roman general literally tells Antiochus that you are never ever to return here. And he draws a circle around Antiochus and says, you need to make the decision before you walk out of that circle. My goodness, that is embarrassing. And that's exactly what Rome wanted to do. So Antiochus had no choice. He walked out of the circle, well, you know, and he, just, he left, right? With his tail between his, his legs, he goes back up north. Now, when he goes back up north from Egypt to Syria, guess where he has to go through? He goes through Israel. And guess where he turns all his rage upon? Israel, Jerusalem, the people of God. Verse 30 again. For the ships of Kittim, the royal navy, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. And Tychus will go to war with God and his people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay. Now anytime you hear about the abomination of desolation in the Bible, this right here is the reference. Now as bad as this is, The real danger in our verses was not persecution. The real danger was compromise. Verse 30, he, Antiochus, shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy 
covenant. This verse tells us that during this reign of terror, some would turn back on their God and give their loyalty to Antiochus. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So we see that there are some who stand firm, which I believe that this points to the Maccabean revolt where they fight against Antiochus and win. This day is celebrated as Hanukkah, but we also see here that other Jews make peace with Antiochus because of his flattery. That Antiochus would tell them of how special they were. He seduced them with the promise of a better life if they would only bow down to him. And you would just imagine how tempting it would be to believe this, these things. That it would be so easy for the Jews to reason to themselves, you know what, you know, it's no good if they kill me. You know, I'm no good to my family if they kill me. I'm no good to the nation if I'm killed here. Or what I can do is I can bow my knee on the outside but protest on the inside. Somewhere down the line, the Jews convinced themselves that they can join forces with Antiochus and still remain pure to God? No, no. Don't compromise, stand for God. And this has been a continual theme throughout the book of Daniel. This is why we have the stories of the fiery furnace. Or back in chapter 1 when Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food. Or Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. In all these situations here, the dominant culture was trying to get the people of God to compromise and to give up on their faith. And they never did. This is why the book of Daniel continues to be so relevant because what Daniel and his friends faced is what Christians face in every generation of every day. We are being tempted to compromise our faith in God. Now, we may never experience the type of opposition like Antiochus, but the pressure to compromise is always there. To be courageous and bold for God could mean a loss of a job. Loss of a promotion, loss of a tax benefit, like a church. We can be smeared all over social media, or it can be more subtle. People push us away relationally. Maybe the circle in your neighborhood, the circle of moms, the circle of coworkers, your social networks, your family begins to push you away because you stand for God. The exhortation from our verses is not to compromise, but to stand for God. That we must be prepared that sometimes God might call us to stand alone. Now, hopefully you're part of a church like Park Community Church where you are loved for and you are cared for, but there might be moments in your classroom, in your university, in your office, over the Thanksgiving dinner table where you will have to stand for God alone. Don't compromise. In verse 35, those who don't compromise are called the wise one. Look at verse 35 again. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So when it says that the wise stumble, it doesn't mean that they compromise their faith. It means physical persecution. Though, though, though they might be harassed and harmed, notice that it will ultimately lead to refinement and purity. For those who stayed faithful, crisis didn't push them away from God, but it drew them closer to God. In the same way, in moments of crisis, in moments when our faith is tested, they are opportunities to purify believers and the church. 
Friends, if you are in a crisis, you have an opportunity. For example, if you are spiritually lukewarm, you need to warm up to God. If you have not really given or served the cause of Christ, but claim to know Jesus, it's time to have a faith that is both word and deeds. Whatever you are experiencing, however hard your life is, when we stay faithful to God, your suffering is never wasted because suffering in the hands of God produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Many of us in this room can affirm that nothing drives us to God like suffering. Nothing gets our attention quicker. Nothing drives our eyes upward quicker. Now, none of us would wish for it. We'd all vote against it. But God uses it to grow our joy and to give him all the glory. Don't compromise. Stand for God. And here's the last lesson. Don't be anxious. Rest in God. Now, before we look at our last, last section of verses here, we have to discern who is being talked about in verse 36. Is verse 36 still Antiochus, or is it someone entirely different? I believe the person being talked about here is the Antichrist. Now, the reason for that is because the description that we're about to read doesn't sound like Antiochus. In our previous verses, all that was prophesied, prophesied were described in remarkable detail, all that would happen to Jerusalem. What we see here simply doesn't describe what Antiochus did. For example, verse 36 starts by saying, and the king shall do as he wills. Now, Antiochus was mighty, but he was only able to do as much as Rome allowed him to do. So this person in verse 36 is way more powerful than Antiochus. In addition, in verses 40 to 45, it tells us how this king will be defeated, and we know that Antiochus dies in the battle of Persia, but in the verses that we're about to read, it talks about the battle between between the sea and Jerusalem and assault on Egypt. Antiochus never did any of that. Thus, I believe that these next section of verses refer to, an anti, refer to the Antichrist and his eventual defeat. I believe that the reason Antiochus and this section are so close together is that Antiochus serves as a foreshadowing of what's to come, of what's to come. So let's look at verse, verses 36 to 39 here. It says this about the Antichrist. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So in this verse here, we read that he attacks God's people and it will be good for business, very good for business. Verse 37 he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by woman. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, basically meaning that his god will be that of war and violence. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make the rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Other words, that he'll make people compromise in their faith here, okay? So what we have here is that we have the characteristics of the Antichrist. There's a lot here, but we see a lot. That he worships violence, 
He has no regard for any other religion. He will get others to compromise and follow him, and he will go to war with the Messiah. Now, those are all very intimidating things, but the chief characteristic of the Antichrist in these verses is that this is someone who exalts himself, exalts himself. And this has always been the primary descriptor of Satan, that he is always looking to take the place of God. He wants to be worshiped. He wants to replace Jesus in our lives. But here's the thing. This isn't just happening in the end times. This isn't just happening in the heart of Satan. The spirit of the Antichrist is true of every generation because today, right now, there is a spiritual battle for your loyalty. There's a temptation every day to have us worship anyone other than Jesus. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. The word anti means to oppose and replace. And this is what Satan is always trying to do, to oppose and replace Jesus. We can see this in our culture and in our hearts anytime we think that we're better than God or that we know better than God and his word. And when you feel this rising up in your heart that you know more and that you're better than God, this is a sin that comes from the very depths of hell. So this is the Antichrist and what he seeks to do. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He would seek to have us worship him and replace Jesus. And I can imagine that as Daniel is reading this, this has got to be a big bummer here. Because he's like, oh my goodness, I thought 70 years of exile would be enough, but I am looking at generations of suffering and oppression all the way to the end times. And it just keeps going and going and going. Is there any good news? There is good news. No matter how bad it gets with Antiochus or with the Antichrist, God's people should not be afraid or anxious because there is always a yet, a yet to come. Look at verse 45 here. It says this. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and glorious holy mountain, talking about the Antichrist, yet, circle that word, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Do you see that? Do you see how Satan comes to an end? Do you know how Satan comes to an end? I know how he comes to an end. You should know how he comes to an end because scripture tells us how he comes to an end. Revelation chapter 19. Let me show it to you here, okay? Revelation 19 says this. Then I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on on white horses. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Lord Jesus coming again. So I can just imagine that when we're talking about the end of history here, that the Antichrist, Satan's like, oh man, look at all the suffering and the the tribulation and all the bloodshed. Yeah, I'm awesome. I'm, I'm crushing it right now. I'm destroying all of God's people and his stuff. And then he hears something. He looks up and he's like, uh oh, I'm in trouble. 
Like, that, like that, that's what I see what's happening here. And let me just keep going. And the verse says, And I saw a beast and the kings of earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. This is how it all goes down. No one will help Satan. No ally will stand next to him because Jesus returns with the armies of heaven. Friends, this is why we don't have to be anxious and we can rest. Is because Jesus has come and he will come again. This vision is a glimpse of the future. Things will get worse. The Antichrist will rise up. Life for the people of God will get harder. The days will get darker. And when hope seems lost, Jesus rides into human history as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will destroy evil and bless those who love him and follow him. We need to live in light of this future. Now, I don't know what the short term holds for me and you but I do know what eternal hope looks like, and that's to be with Jesus forever. And that is good news. You know, I hope that none of us here are thinking that God is sitting up in heaven and he's looking down, biting on his nails. Oh, you know, what am I gonna do? You know, how am I gonna save them? Oh, it's so scary. No, God has a plan. He has the power and he has given us his promises. We can rest. You see, at the end of history, This Antichrist will be no different than any other human king or queen. Before God, he is nothing. For all his armies, for all his self-exaltation, for all the destruction and tribulation he brings, God will wipe him out, and just like that, he's gone. This is the hope and assurance that God wants to give to Daniel as he cries out in prayer, as he mourns over the sinful state of his people. God gives him an eternal perspective of an everlasting kingdom. Daniel, Park Community Church South Loop, don't give up hope. Don't compromise. Don't be fearful. Trust in your God. Don't live for your glory. Live for his glory. Even in the darkest and most frightful times, look to the God who rules over history. Amen? Amen. Do you guys see? Daniel is not a book about prophecy, even though there's a lot of it. It's a book of hope. It's given to us so that the people of God would be strengthened to stay faithful to their God because God is in control. And that is good news. Amen. Amen. But let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the months that we've spent in the book of Daniel and still one more week next week as we wrap up. But God, we're reminded over and over and over again in the book of Daniel that you are sovereign, that God, that you are in control, that nothing catches you off guard, nothing happens in history, Lord, without you sovereignly, sovereignly overseeing every little movement so that it works all towards your glory. God, I pray for us here, Lord, that God, that as you work through human history with precision, God, it gives us comfort to know that God, if you care about those details, God, you know the details of our life too. And Father, for all the different things that we're facing, the anxieties, the the worries, 
Lord, the different maybe stresses that are pushing on our lives, the relational conflicts. Lord, it's a whole bunch of different things that are on us right now, Father. I pray, Lord, that in these moments, Lord, that your spirit would comfort us through your word to remind us again that you are a God who rules the future. That, God, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I don't know what next week's going to hold. But, God, I know the one who holds it, and that's you. So, Father, grow our faith. Grow our joy. Lord, remind us of the cross and of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished and what he would do when he returns. Father, it's in his name we worship. Amen.